strapped in the trenches Making moves going all out Every day handle business You know that the hustle don't stop Got my team, let's get it Reviewing books and talk stocks Steady keep it moving So you gon' wanna tune in Get Lowdown, it's an app Get local food on demand Delivery right to your home Everything in the palm of your hand Took hard work and dedication Come through, join the conversation This is history up in the making We just wanna be an inspiration Hey, let's go Welcome to another episode of Bootstrapped in the Trenches. Today, we've got a very special guest, Dan Solomon Choi, the founder and CEO of 16 Handles, the first ever New York City self-served Froyo franchise. Self-served. So he started this back in the financial crisis in 2008. He'll be coming on the horn with us in 30 minutes. Uh, I know, sweet tooth Dan, as we like to call you, you're a big fan of desserts. Are you a Froyo guy, Dan? I'm honestly not a Froyo guy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like a good cup of Froyo, but I don't prefer Froyo over ice cream. I'm an ice cream guy. And there's Corey on cue. Corey, are you a Froyo guy? I love Froyo. You do, right? Yeah, big time. You and I had quite the experience. We'll have to ask Solomon if he's ever at Yogurtland. I mean, back in Denver, talk about a diuretic. Uh, that beats coffee to the T. Corey and I used to have a Sunday night ritual when we lived in Denver together. We would get yogurt land and let's just say I never slept well that night. I was on the toilet constantly. It, it tasted great going down, but that was it. But from what I hear, I've honestly never had 16 handles. Have you, Corey? Yeah, it's amazing. I get it all the time. I actually live across the street from one. And one clearly this week now that Solomon's coming on. I'm pumped to try it. I've heard great things. What's it like? Yeah, it's the, definitely the best flavor options uh, as far as like the pink berries and all the other Froyo ones go. It's definitely the best one. Um, I love it. But um, I was actually, so the food for thought I have is about Froyo facts. And it's just interesting that it always gives us stomach aches, but it, it actually is really good for your digestive system which is odd, but maybe that has something in, to do with why it gives us stomach aches. Interesting. Froyo yeah. is good for your digestive system. Yeah. So Froyo has uh, Froyo is actually a living thing uh, and it has bacteria inside of it. That's good for your digestive system. It helps you. It's called like a culture, I believe, and it helps you digest. So it might just be flushing out things in your stomach. I don't know. Or maybe we're just getting the sugar-free ones or the fat-free ones that uh, are probably what's doing it to us. So a is it a probiotic, Corey? Yeah, it's a probiotic, a natural, like the natural Froyo flavor, like the, the classic, not vanilla, but the tart Greek one, that's just a natural probiotic. Um, and it has, yeah, it's good. It's a good bacteria. I mean, you know, you guys know my attitude when it comes to eating something that's like naturally supposed to be a treat. Just to steer away from the sugar-free, fat-free. At that point, go in on it. You're eating healthier without the stuff that's free. If that yeah. makes any sense, it's true. You don't know what's in those chemicals, like these sugar replacements where you think something's sugar-free and there's 12 grams of something you don't even know how to pronounce. I stay away from that stuff. I'd rather have a little sugar that I know will digest or else that just converts into something that's not good. And yeah, I, yeah. I am not a fan of these new movements that have come out with all these protein bars and things that taste like candy, but are not really healthy for you. At that point, just have a Snickers, honestly. 
that's yeah, I mean, my, there's no doubt there's like Aloha bars or great protein bars, Atlas bars. There are some very healthy protein bars on the market, but some of these that have come out recently, when you like have a rainbow cake flavor, something, and you look at the ingredients, it's kind of dicey. Yeah. I mean, unless you're like a diabetic and needs to wash their sugar, it's probably better off if you're actually just getting the normal flavor. Exactly. So before we we're actually, we're going to have Kanj on in 10 minutes for a little fun game, but I wanted to just give Solomon the proper intro since he'll be coming on at five. Corey, thank you for uh, lining him up. This is a great guest. Solomon Choi is an entrepreneur, advisor, investor with a background in hospitality management, food and beverage, marketing, operations, restaurant concept creation, franchising, and brand strategy. In 2008, the heart of the financial crisis, as we all remember, business was on the up and up at that point. He founded 16 Handles, New York City's first self-serve frozen yogurt shop. Using his background in growing restaurant chains in the restaurant industry, his new restaurant concept would become the segment leader in New York City and grow to over 40 locations internationally. The 16 Handles approach to business incorporates new business development, menu development, and a lifestyle focus for the millennial consumer. Current goals are to expand 16 Handles concept nationally and internationally into the Middle East, Asia, and Europe. Solomon spends much of his free time speaking in front of students, entrepreneurs, and organizations in the US and globally, including Saudi Arabia and Korea, and he also advises startups in the F&B space that are looking, F&B being food and beverage for our listeners and viewers, that are looking to scale and become best in class brands in both domestic and international marketplaces. I mean, guys, I'm pumped to have Solomon on uh, to just pick his brain for starters about how he thought 2008 was right for the picking for starting his business. And I'm really curious to know if he had another food for thought with a different type of concept or if Froyo was his initial, oh, we're doing self-serve Froyo because you need to have a lot of conviction to get into the mode of we are going to be not only the first self-serving Froyo franchise, but in New York City of all places. Talk about a guy with confidence and he's been extremely successful the past decade plus running this, expanding it and um, I know from watching, I know, Corey, you were saying too, you've watched some of his videos from other interviews. I, I was watching one on the whole delivery, how he had to get into delivery recently based yeah. on what's been going on. I'm very curious to hear him dive into the packaging because I know, as we all know in our industry with delivery, there are certain things that deliver well, certain things don't deliver well. He seems to have figured out how to really make Froyo a viable option for delivery, which I'll is- tell you because he started this as self-serving. So when you think about it, it started as you went in there and served yourself. And now delivery is part of his game. Yeah, and, and it's my favorite thing to order for delivery because if you go in the store, you obviously put your toppings on, you weigh it, it's that kind of model. But when you get it delivered, you literally get the actual the pint or whatever size you get, but then they put all the toppings that you order in like little plastic cups. So they give you like eight or 10 plastic cups of all the toppings you have, and you can literally just pour it on as you go. So usually like you get the ice cream and you, all the toppings are at top, on the top and you eat it as you go and you just eat it and all, you eat the toppings first. But this like you add it while you eat it. So you get like the perfect mix of toppings and froyo and every bite. It's not just like eating all the toppings at once. Corey, so what are your favorite toppings when it comes to froyo? I always go like the the carob chips 
or like the yogurt chips, uh, honey. Yeah, honey, granola. I mean, I like the more healthier stuff, fruit. Um, yeah, not not the class. Uh, Dan's shaking his head. Dan's like, where are the brownies, <laughs> the marshmallows, the sprinkles? I, I know Dan. <laughs> he'll go to town. I know he's not a froyo guy, but he's throwing a lot of sugary stuff on there. Well, yeah. What's that, Dan? Oreos. I like Oreos. Oreo crumble makes. I mean, that that works in any food on the planet when you think about it. Like, oh, yeah. what does Oreo not go well with? You can put that in pad thai, and it would probably taste good. Seriously. But it's funny though that the delivery comes just in regular containers. Like there's nothing special about it. I think they just don't deliver it until like they make it right before they deliver it, and that's just. I'm you know I'm curious to hear that Corey and Dan about the future of packaging. Maybe he can shed some light on that because you got to think a guy like Solomon Choi with the business he has, delivery packaging must be at the forefront of his thoughts right now with this pandemic and the social distancing and. Clearly, it's part of his model. I wonder what kind of testing they've been doing, if any, in that in that regard. I know we've always talked about that not being the food product itself, but the carrier, the courier. It, it's vital. And I think delivery packaging still has a long way to go in our industry. Yeah, I, I yeah. feel like a Froyo place right now, it's got to be really tough in a pandemic. I mean, I just think about well, I know what I'm doing. The only time I'm really going after restaurants, whether it's delivery or takeout, it's like core meals. I find myself doing like the ice cream. Like I haven't gone out to ice cream since I moved out of here, and I live in a hot, a hot place year round. So I'm just thinking it's probably got to be a tough business right now. I bet you he's killing it. I think when people are stressed, they clearly eat junk food. And I think Froyo is something that – like Corey was just highlighting a few minutes ago, it's not that bad for you as it is, and you can make it pretty healthy. I think that he's probably seen a huge uptick. There's a reason Dan he incorporated delivery into his model, which he'll shed light on. But I, I think the demand has been through the charts for him. I, I think he's lucky to be in New York City, where you know everything's in a block radius. You walk outside, and there's a Froyo shop. Like it's different. If I think it's different than being in a, a normal suburban town or even somewhere like Charleston, just being in New York is, is different for that kind of model. I think it helps them greatly. Yeah, that, that could be true. I mean, I guess if people aren't going to grocery stores as much in a place like New York because of how much is like right around them and available for delivery, they might be more inclined to get it. But to me, like right now, people, because I love junk food and I'm the type of guy who goes out to places like that. And lately, really ever since the pandemic started, I've gotten in the habit of going to the grocery store and I load up on the things I want. I make sure I have the junk food I want and I know it's there and it's great. So yeah, yeah it's good. It's good. I, uh, did no I did notice like before the pandemic, we used to go there a bunch and it, it was a big hangout spot for kids. I noticed I'm mean, not, not like little kids, like uh, high schoolers just hanging out there. Um, I, I, I don't know what it is, but it seemed like it was always packed with like kids that are 18, 19 years old, maybe a little bit younger, or maybe high school kids. It's hard to grasp their age, but I thought that was interesting. It seems yeah. like he's put a lot of work into the presentation of these stores to make it that type of vibe. And even when he talked over the creative of making sure he had a female millennial in charge of social media, Solomon sounds like a very methodical, calculated businessman. So yeah, I thought does. that was pretty fascinating. I'm sure we'll be able to... Uh, hit it off and have a lot in common with them. Sure. Absolutely.
Dan, what do we have current events wise? I mean, I didn't really have anything that like struck my events as worthwhile to talk about. I don't know if you guys did. I thought I mean, we had Donald Trump's younger, youngest brother pass away a couple of days true. back. That's true. Which, you know, people were, there was a trend on Twitter, the wrong Trump, which to me is just distasteful. I don't yes. care if you hate Trump or love him, his brother died. And yeah. for that to even be a thing that's someone would even fathom to me is just asinine. To say the least, yeah. I 100 agree with you. You know, um, I yeah, you know, I guess anything on the sports front with this virus has there been any update with any star athletes opting out? That's a surprise, or how are we looking? Have you got? I honestly haven't paid much attention in that regard. I mean, the NBA playoffs started this weekend. I haven't really seen anything else come from the COVID cases regarding uh, any sports. I did see that. Uh, Notre Dame, op- like as soon as Notre Dame opened school, they had uh, 80 cases instantly. And so it tripled from like in literally one day. So it's just a bad sign for colleges in general for opening classes, as we know, based off UNC. It's things like everything's going to be online and people are just kind of learning from colleges that already started earlier. So, yeah, it's, I'm still curious to see what it's like in our towns if like the people come back in the normal pace that they do. Like, or do you guys think that the college kids are coming back to town? I mean, if I'm Thanks. a college kid, I'm, I'm just coming back to town and doing my classes online. Obviously, these kids want to be around friends. Who yeah. wants to be hanging out at home with their parents taking online classes? I would rather roll the dice, be safe with a mask, you know, make sure when I'm with my friends, we're not just having rage parties like they had in Wuhan with millions of people in the water, which that I saw. The, that was the yeah. thing I was actually bringing up. Was that was the, ridiculous. Yeah, I, I don't know insane. what was going on there, but that I don't know if they were trying to mock the U.S. or something, but that was odd. That's just fucked up, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? The, from the epicenter where it started, I think that was a knock on Trump, personally. They're taunting I, us. You know? They're taunting us. Yeah, it seems it's like crazy. it. So yeah, I don't know what that was about. But I'm sure we'll hear more about that because I saw that and I just, I don't know if that was fake. It it totally fake. Photoshopped. Could have been photoshopped. Could have been fake. I mean, the epicenter of the virus, all of a sudden people are having lazy river parties, like the biggest <laughs> one on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I understand. I honestly, I hope it's photoshopped. Yeah. Me too. Fake to me. Yeah. I didn't even know they had that kind of flexibility out there to have that kind of fun. Yeah. The other thing I saw, I mean, this is more New York city wise, but they're finally opening up gyms to 33% capacity. Cuomo had no choice. He was getting sued. You see how that just came about? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but that should be a good sign. I don't know if I'll be going back to a gym anytime soon, but I don't know. And then I I thought about it. It's like, I'd rather go to a gym that has a 33% capacity than go to a normal gym where I always thought it was disgusting where it's always full in New York at least. And there's sweat everywhere. Like I'd rather go to a gym that doesn't allow a hundred percent capacity. It's just well, more. How long do you see that happening until there's a virus? Like that, the capacity thing is short term, right? No. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Gonna, I, I, at the end of the day, these gym owners need to just survive, so they're not going to reclose whether there's a virus or not. At the end of the day, if there is a virus, it's going to be impossible to be like, oh, this guy got it at the gym. Like if you're going to a gym, you're going to a hundred other places. 
But I'll tell you one thing. I got to either join a gym or, like, order weights just to have around the house because I feel like I, that's, like, one thing I miss and haven't been doing since the whole thing started. I started running, and I freaking broke my toe last week, so now I'm doing anything, and I just feel like a lazy fuck. Dan, just curl young men. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, yeah, it's tough without the weights. I mean, I've been doing a lot of push-ups, pull-ups, core exercises, runs. Pull-ups on what? On Paul has a pull-up bar at his place. Uh, does he really? That's and there's also, you know the deal, Corey, in New York, you could do pull-ups on the side of all these things. Like, oh, I've yeah. done pull-ups on these, like, banisters that are all over the streets. Well, I love the, the – they have, like, these outside, like uh, – they look like playgrounds, but people just work out on them. They're awesome. Yeah. They're, they're like so, all over. I've been fortunate. I've never, like, obviously I always used to do free weights like three, four days a week, but I, uh, I, I don't think I've missed the gym as much as most. I've mostly over the years done my own workouts, like just with my own body for the most part. So this has not been the end of the world personally for me, but yeah, it'd be nice to be able to go lift some weights. It's a different type of stress release for sure. Yeah, I don't miss yeah. it as much as much in the summer, but I think when winter comes and it can't run outside, that's when I'll really, you know, miss the gym. Corey, that's why we might have to set up shop in Miami so we could run outside. Seriously. I know what you mean. That definitely does not sound too appealing of being in cold weather without going to a gym. I, I don't know what the – I'm that's iffy. Yeah. I'll tell you what was funny, Yuri. I was uh, on my way back from the Keys last weekend. I went to Miami just for the day before I went to the airport because we had a late flight. And, dude, it was such a ghost town there. Obviously, because of COVID right now, it's like a hot spot and everything was basically shut down. And they even had three, it's called Ocean Ave. The street that like goes up and down South Beach was completely blocked off. And Miami was just a complete ghost town. It was like almost, it was crazy. Wow. Yeah, I've been there so many times. That, that's crazy even yeah. just picturing it like that. Yeah, this time of year on a Sunday. You know what I mean? It Sounds like a great time to head down there and get a place. I know, seriously, right? Take advantage yeah. of it. I mean, whenever there's fire, it's, that's the best time to run in, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, we were going to have Conj come on again, but I, I guess he pulled <laughs> a magical disappearing act. I don't know what's going on there. You should call him on speakerphone on here so we can hear it. Let's see if we can get Conj on here. Yeah. I don't know. He must be in a time warp or something. <laughs> I love it. Kaj is so consistent. I, that's yeah. the thing about the Kaj. Well, I was just with Kaj this weekend. He's been very consistent lately with like grabbing a bite and, you know, really has been on point a ton, except for the last couple of weeks on here. <laughs> He's coming on now. Kaj is, so Kaj is a food uh, trivia game for us guys that he's been working diligently on. Nice. So we'll see him in a second, and then we got the Froyo King of New York. It looks like it's going to storm here also. It does. Lightning so hard. It like looks like it's lightning inside my room. It's I got a run-in right before the storm, luckily. I was not feeling it today. That's what separates the greats, Dan. On those days you're not feeling it, you push through. Dude, trust me. I know, and I am the greats. Oh, well, you have a broken toe. I'm talking yeah. about when you have a broken toe. This is like it's nagging. If I don't hurt nearly as much as it did the first two days, there's no way I could run. Because every time I do anything, it just like gets worse. 
Who was that NHL player that played like with a broken foot or was it a couple toes? Was it Eric Lindros back in the day? I remember there being some star that somehow popped out a injury like that where I was just like, what is this guy? What's in his blood? <laughs> I don't know, but I player would probably play with a broken foot or a toe. Yeah. He's got such animals. I, I would play with a broken foot if I had the opportunity. No doubt about it. I played basketball with a broken foot once. Did you know really? it? Yeah, I mean, like I broke it and kept playing, didn't know it was broken, and then found out it was. Mm, that's never fun. I had been knock on wood. I had been fortunate, even though with my clumsy ways over the years, no broken bones. I've had a lot of my fingers look like they've broken my pinkies like 80 times. But, oh, the conch is here. There he is. Wow, look at that outfit, conch. Oh, is, is, that a, is that a suit jacket? I love it. It is. I'm prepared for my game show host duties. I love it, Conch. We're going to do a speedy version of this. So today what we are doing, we're, we're changing the format slightly. I've realized that Mike is particularly good at this from his years of doing food trivia on his own. So we're going to make the game a little more challenging for Mike. His questions are going to be slightly harder. And if either of you manage to beat him, you will win a $25 food credit on Lodell.com. Lodell.com, where food meets bellies. Thank you. They're the official sponsor of Food Trivia. And uh, get ready for Win Mike Rowland's Lunch. Oh, yeah. Let's go. All right. So, first up is Dan Rowland from Watcham, New Jersey. Dan Rowland, your categories are vegetables, coffee, nutritional facts, and the black market. Ooh. I the black market. Black market. I had a feeling you'd go that direction. <laughs> in 2008, in Italy, 23 people and 85 farms were confiscated as part of an investigation into counterfeiting of this kitchen food staple. Studies done in the past 10 years have estimated that between 50 and 80% of this product still do not meet FDA standards. What product is this? Wine, cheese, vinegar, or olive oil? Wow. Oh, I I'm going to go with vinegar. That is incorrect. <laughs> the correct answer is olive oil, and experts yeah. recommend buying olive oil made in California. Wow. That's a good one, Conch. Thank that you. Is a good one. Corey's up next. Corey is up next. Wait, Corey, I, just, I appreciate the uh, multiple choice format. That was <laughs> you got it. Mike does not yeah. get multiple choice. That is the difference like in this format wow. today. Oh, I think I'd go with that. Yeah, I think I'll win this. Next up is Corey Aronson from Parts Unknown. <laughs> Corey, your categories are vegetables, coffee, or nutritional facts. I'll go nutritional facts, Sean. Good choice. How many calories are consumed by licking a stamp? 0.1, wow. 1, 10, or 50? That's honestly a trick question. That's hard. Uh, you got this, Corey. Point one. <laughs> that is correct. It is point yes. one calorie. Huh. How about oh, wow. that? I did not know that. I thought that was a different answer. Nice one. Yeah, I, I was going to say 10. Yeah. <laughs> See, it seems a bit high for a stamp. It does. That, it come does. To think of it, that is a bit high for a stamp. Like it is a bit high, but low in general. So if you want a low calorie snack, look no further than <laughs> yeah. the post office. They taste better than celery, folks. Indeed. Butter actually more calories than celery. <laughs> um, 
Mike, you are up next for your more challenging questions. Your question today, your first question today is, what does the word pepperoni mean in Italian? Oh, man. <laughs> I think you stumped me on this one. Let me think yeah. about it. I don't think he knows it. Neither uh, what does it mean in Italian? Go? Go is your, is your final answer. Go. I'll go with go. The answer is bell pepper. Oh, okay. Well, so if you, if you order a pepperoni pizza in Italy, you will not get American pepperoni on it. So what do you have to, to get American pepperoni? What do you ask for? I believe they don't have it. Wow. wow. Yeah. That is, Conj, great. You came prepared today. That's awesome. Do I take my hosting abilities uh, seriously. Oh, well, yeah. So, so four, after round one, Corey looks like he might be getting a free lunch today. Oh, yes. boy. Round two, Dan Rowland. Your categories are vegetables and coffee. I'll do coffee. This country is the biggest producer of organic coffee in the world. Colombia, Peru, Mexico, or the Philippines? Colombia. That is incorrect. The yeah. answer is Peru. Peru. Oh, Dan did not eat his Wheaties this morning. No, that's I mean, unfortunate. Yeah, like I figured that was just an easy one that you were handing to me. In Colombia, you think of Colombia. I don't coffee. like giving out easy ones. You guys both knew that it was Peru? Yeah, yeah, that one I know. I just read Coffee Land, so there we go. Yeah, Dan, if you had read Coffee Land, you would have gotten that. Corey I've never gets one of these questions. Yet. Well, there you go. Mm. So, uh, Corey Aronson, your your category is vegetables. Before 2013, for several years, this food chain was the largest purchaser of kale, McDonald's, Panera Bread, Pizza Hut, or Salad Works. Well, I mean, I'm going to narrow it down to Panera or Salad Works. Uh, I guess I'll go Salad Works. No, that no, Corey. Incorrect. Uh, McDonald's. Oh, Mike is actually incorrect on this one, too. The answer is Pizza Hut. Oh, shit. Ooh. I did not. I thought that was McDonald's as like that trick one where you'd never expect it. Well, I just went through McDonald's menu in my head. I was like, what do they actually put kale on? What does Pizza Hut put kale on? So what they actually so, used it was for their salad bar as decoration. No one actually ate it. It was a decorative item. Wow. You know, I actually knew that, Conj. I read that somewhere. I don't know why McDonald's came to mind. I read that like three weeks ago. Yeah. That is a trick question. So, Mike, you have one chance to not lose your lunch today. Uh-oh. Here's your question. Carrots don't actually make your eyesight better. It is a myth that was started during a war as a deception tactic to convince one side that the other side had soldiers with better eyesight. Which war was it and which side began the myth? Oh, man. I want to say that, was that the Russian-German war? I, I remember there was that standstill where there was like a, a truce and they stopped fighting at one point. I want to say that was it. Nope. Well, that was a good try, but the actual answer is World War II, and it was the Ooh. British Air Force that started the myth as a way to hide the fact that they developed a new form of, um, what's it called, radar technology to detect, to detect the German warplanes. Wow. Conj, wow. great job, man. You were, uh, I, I guess, Corey. Conj, as the winner... Can I request that you come on next week and we turn this into a round two instead of a, a round two? Away? Yeah. R round two with Conch. For I think we need this every week with Conch. Got it. Yeah, yeah. me too. I think it's yeah. a great segment. 
All right, then let's tell you. Yeah. Well, Conch, any week you're able to come on, man. Let's yeah, make I was going to say, Carl just got really nervous thinking that he had September. No, Conch is the one who wanted to do this. <laughs> okay. it. I'll be back next week for the next yeah. round of Win Mike Rowland's Lunch. Hell yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Sean Connell, uh, for coming yeah. on, being a great host there. Great outfit. As good of questions. You really brought your A-plus game today. Yeah, I'll do my best. And congratulations, Corey Aronson. You win $25 on Lodell.com. I think Sean has a TV host in his future. Yeah, he does. Wait, Great job, dude. Sean. Thank you. I Sean, we got to get you into acting because you could turn that script, like flip a script easily. <laughs> that's, really uh, that's an idea. I should say. <laughs> yeah, I, I might consider it as a side hobby from uh, my uh, full-time career as a uh, food trivia host. And for those viewers that want to know, when the comedy sellers start opening back up in New York, you'll find Sean doing open mic night every Monday, at least, maybe even more. That's right. I do a, I do a 25 minute act on having a mustache. There it is. <laughs> yeah. Donald, can you repeat our slogan? Lodell.com, where food meets bellies. <laughs> <laughs> that really is a great slogan. I, I yeah, love start using that in ads. It's free. You got it. Boom, baby. <laughs> well, Conj, appreciate it, man. We'll see you next week on another episode here. Great. Thanks for having me. Enjoy your guest host or your guests. Thanks. Later, Conj. Conj crushed it there. That was yeah, great. That was awesome. Awesome. But Conj, he shows up, bounces, you know, a little of this, a little of that. And got- Solomon Choi should be coming on any second. Conch has the pizzazz. He does. He's always had pizzazz. He does. He's got it. He's a very funny dude. Fucking love the Conch. Yeah, it's good. Conch is, when he's on on point, he's as good as it gets in this space. So, Mike, how was uh, Ocean City? Oh, I mean, I had a great time with Sean, Blaze, Adam, Alec. It's the place is a dump. It's like the poor man's version of Seaside Heights. I thought we were on an episode of The Biggest Loser. To be honest, just, it was just unbelievable. Like I was, I thought I was just sitting down at a table. There's this bachelorette party, just chain smoking cigarettes and downing like huge 32 ounce beers. And I'm just looking around and I'm like, what are, what's going on here? It was a bit, you know, the weather was kind of crappy too, but it's always good to catch up with the Watchung boys. You know, we have fun wherever we are. We're going to start doing, Corey, these were a few kids I, I grew up with, with Sean. So Known them all since kindergarten, you know. You you yeah. have friends like that. It's always fun. Definitely, always a good time. Yeah, Ocean City's a, a shithole. <laughs> oh, it's big time, man! It's crazy. Um, and yeah, I think Solomon should be coming on here any second. Yeah. Maybe finishing up a froyo. I would be if I was him. Like, remember when we used to pass out insomnia cookies? I probably put on like thirty pounds. That was the one time in my life. Like there's no one year where you were like kind of getting fat. Yeah, that was the year B Town Menu started. I know. Like, ever since then, every time anyone sees you, they're like, "Oh, you look really skinny." And now, it's yeah, like, like, dude, like, I've been the same way for over a decade. <laughs> I, I went through one stretch of like two months, and then everyone, oh man, you look great. Did you lose weight? There he is. Solomon will be on in a second. Perfect. Solomon Choi, the one and only. How's it hey, going? Hey guys, buddy? how are you? Good, good. How are you? Pretty right. good. Thanks for taking the time, man. Yeah, yeah. I apologize. I wasn't expecting to be in a car at this uh, at this time, but oh. here I am. No worries, man. I'm <laughs> sure it's been pretty crazy with the pandemic. 
Yeah, yeah. I actually just uh, dropped off my nanny at the uh, station and realized that I was low on gas. So um, I was I was hoping that I'd be home by now, but uh, <laughs> had to pull over. Solomon, take us through what is the work life balance like for you? Because I gave you an intro before you came on to our viewers, and I don't know if you've started cloning without anyone realizing it. You seem to have so much going on, and you're a family man. How do how do you balance the two, especially now during these times? Yeah, you know, probably to like a lot of a uh, lot of people and a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, those lines have definitely been blurred uh, during the pandemic. As far as my support center office goes, we've been work from home since uh, mid-March when the city was announcing that it was going to shut down. And I myself moved the family out to my in-laws place in Long Island. So I've been out in the suburbs, um, I mean, for like the last, what is that, like five months now. Wow, I can't believe it's been five months. Yeah. Wow. And so, really uh, you know, so, you know, in terms of trying to balance things, I mean, that's what it is. I think for one, uh, you know, all people are, are kind of in, in a similar boat. So I think there's a lot of empathy there um, in terms of, you know, people realizing that, you know, my, if, if I were at home, my three-year-old daughter could just as very well walk into the room while I'm doing this uh, podcast. So, you know, and I've certainly had my fair share of those types of, uh, you know, unplanned um, interruptions. But again, I think just the level of patience for everyone needs to be super high um, in order to get the same types of things done. Um, but I will say that there is, at least I do have the balance of being able to work out of my Manhattan office once a week. So I go in on Wednesdays and I'm the only one in my office there. And so those are probably the days I get the most things done. So I also try to plan accordingly um, if I do need to, you know, um, yeah, just like get a, get a bunch of stuff done without having any interruptions. I, I definitely do that there. And Solomon, what's it been like in terms of the employees at the actual locations compared to pre-pandemic with the social distancing and how many people you're able to have working at once? How has that, has that been quite a challenge? You know, for us, it really hasn't. Um, I would say we've certainly had to adjust our operations to make sure people feel comfortable about coming back in. I mean, just the nature of our business being self-serve. You know, I had some of my franchisees were quite worried, you know, back in April, they're like, oh, we're done for it. Like, no one's going to come back into our stores. And I said, no, um, you know, I highly doubt that. I think, you know, certainly everyone had a heightened sensitivity because no one knew what was going on. But I said, look, things will settle down. We'll make the adjustments that are necessary. So we have signage throughout the stores for social distancing. Um, we have, uh, you know, gloves, hand sanitizer available for all uh, all customers that come in. We require masks at all of our stores. And so we'll take the lead from like the local jurisdiction in terms of, you know, what needs to be done in a retail environment. But within our stores, just the added layers of security, cleanliness, people see that. And I think when they see it, they realize, okay, like this is, um, you know, this is safer than I thought. And in terms of our employees, you know, we're self-serve operations. So being minimally staffed is something that we're used to. So I think again, uh, even within um, the context of our own employees, being able to work, you know, one or two employees during a shift and being able to, you know, stay distanced from each other. Again, I think just the sheer nature of our operating model allows for that. It's more conducive than, let's say, you know, some of my peers in the restaurant setting where, you know, they're shoulder to shoulder with four people on a, on a prep line, you know, and that's that's tough to distance and, um, and maintain that. But, um, you know, I think we all have to kind of make the necessary adjustments both internally and then also for our guests. And for us, it was more, you know, both obviously important, but again, I think the perception being that we're known for self-serving, people are serving themselves and touching things that other people touch. We certainly had to approach that with you know, a bit more sensitivity 
Um, but, you know, I will say, proudly say that we've had stores that were able to stay open even during the entire pandemic because, um, you know, we have operators that are just on top of it. And um, some of those stores are now back to 2019 revenues. And so wow. I think that's incredible. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So I, wish, it, I, it, I wish I could say that was the case with all of our stores. But, you know, just to have that in our mix, you know, has been a, has been a blessing to say the least. Is there a certain amount of people that are allowed in the store at one time? How does that work? You know, we don't necessarily uh, cap it off, but again, it's really at the store's discretion. And I think, again, both the employees and the customers are both res respecting kind of the business's desire to maintain uh, social distancing. And, you know, we've, I'll give you an example, like our Fairfield, Connecticut store, um, just the other week, you know, as a residual of the hurricane, they had, the store operators had a power outage, so they had no power at home. But the store did and the store was cranking and so people were lining up outside and just you know it looked like a trader joe's probably from the outside and so <laughs> again like you know we maintain the the six feet we don't want people butting up next to each other again a very different site than our stores typically at this time of the year where you know all those all those handles are certainly taken and people are waiting but um yeah. again i think i think people understand and there's you know a certain level of patience and understanding on their end and the other component of it being you know we've had um off-premise. So we've had, you know, curbside pickup, uh, you can order online, you can order through the third-party delivery platforms. So just having those additional sales channels has also helped us um, both, again, like I would say in the earlier months of the pandemic and certainly now um, as we're going to transition into our fall season where, you know, we get typically less foot traffic in store, um, but, you know, we'll be able to serve our customers kind of through all those channels, whether it's in-store or, you know, for pickup or delivery. For sure. Yeah. So what do you being in the delivery business, uh, we're, we're fascinated to hear what that's like for you with Froyo with delivery, because we've always seen over the years, certain foods deliver really well, like pizza and wings. And then there's foods that, you know, people, the verdicts out sometimes on whether or not they want to try it for delivery. It seems like you've been able to figure out how to have your product delivered to the door without a problem. How have you gone about that? Yeah, we have, you know, I think the advantage we have, and I would say when it comes to kind of my peers in the frozen dessert business, retail business, that's probably been our competitive advantage is that we're a New York City based brand. So, you know, being in the city, there's an expectation that anything can be delivered for a price. And so, you know, that's why you have the highest adoption of, um, you know, off premise orders in the New York City marketplace, even though a lot of these technology companies are birthed in Silicon Valley on the West Coast. And so, that being said, we've been doing delivery for going on seven years now. And so in terms of perfecting the operations of that, I mean, I think, you know, our uh, ratings on the de different delivery sites will certainly, you know, um, you know, kind of, you know, show themselves for, for what it's worth. But that's where, again, I think a lot of our peers who really as a result of COVID-19 had to adjust and try to figure that out. Um, many of them without, you know, the necessary tech stack solutions to be able to do it, let alone the operational solutions. Like, how do you train a staff to do things a certain way at a time when you know stores aren't allowed to be open um so for us again i think one of the few blessings in disguise that we've had is really our commitment to making sure that we've had those channels open and that we've perfected that uh, really for years so i agree though it's, i always find it interesting when i have conversations and people are like oh you know yeah i know six channels and wait how do you deliver soft serve froyo? Like, doesn't it melt? Like, they don't get it. Like you said, like if I said I was doing pizza, no brainer. You would think I'm crazy if I don't delivery, but um, I still find it quite quite interesting and, and funny. And again, I think it shows that there's just that much more of an addressable market 
for even New Yorkers who are familiar, who are already customers, who are familiar with my brand that maybe didn't realize that that was an option. So, um, you know, if anything, this brought it to light. And I hear that with a lot of my peers who are, you know, um, who are, uh, you know, in the direct to consumer, uh, you know, business, they're just like the habits that they wished were, would be formed over the next 10 years. They're like got accelerated in the, you know, in the last five months. And so I think that, you know, we are certainly uh, benefiting from that as well in terms of that type of adoption. Yeah, I'm sure competition that you had that wasn't necessarily prepared for this era wasn't able to stay open and stay afloat. And there's probably way less restaurants now that are even making their own restaurants in your face. That's why it helped you tremendously, just like being prepared for this and other places on it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think the benefit here also in that we're a franchise operation as opposed to just being corporate owned is I've had the benefit of having um, store owners who, again, they themselves have been very entrepreneurial. And, you know, we have stores throughout the tri-state. We have a store in Boca Raton, Florida. So even though New York City was the epicenter, again, like even the local jurisdiction, there were there were different uh, requirements and mandates that needed to be done. And really at the core of it, it's if the customers that are coming into your store, depending on where your store is, aren't comfortable, then that's going to impact your business. And so I didn't have to sit down with my team at the support center. Um, well, first of all, we weren't sitting together, right? You got come come mid-March. and But just not having the extra burden of trying to figure this across multiple markets where all the you know rules are, are slightly different and having, again, the local store owners who the customers have come to trust and who they're familiar with making those changes. I mean, sometimes on a daily, if not a weekly basis. And then for us to be able to share that, just, you know, having webinars with our franchisees and them sharing best practices. And, you know, some of the stores were gearing up to, you know, being open. And for instance, the latest uh, stores that opened were the mall locations in Jersey, right? Just because malls weren't allowed to be open um, up until, you know, I think end of June. So just having those operators engaged, learning from the operators like in Connecticut and in Northern New York, where they opened up first, they were able to get a lot of those best practices and adapt them. So from day one, there was no hiccup, there was no misstep. And it was like, wow, like they're operating as if they never missed a step. And so, you know, I have to say that I'm very appreciative for having franchise operators. You know, sometimes people ask me, they're like, oh, well, what's what's better franchising or going corporate? And you can't answer that one way or the other, you know? So this is yeah. one of those instances where having the mind share of, you know, 15 different owners certainly helped us as opposed to, you know, the, the several of us at the support center trying to figure it out for all the stores. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. How many locations are you up to? So we have uh, 31 locations out of the 33 we had that reopened um, as of uh, end of June. So, you know, that statistic right there, over 90% of our stores open come July 1st. I think we have to be the only chain in New York City that can say that. Um, yeah, and, you know, and so, but that's not to say there aren't, our challenges. Um, one of the locations, it's in an underground uh, transit like retail area under Columbus Circle. There's no transit going on. There's no tourism. So, you know, whether or not that store reopens, it's still to be determined. Um, and, you know, I know they're negotiating with the landlord there, but really there's no business. There's no addressable consumer right now. Um, and then, you know, we have uh, like our Rutgers location, which is on a university campus. I mean, there's no school. They're right. still operating, but again, it's a struggle. So, you know, we certainly have those unique situations that present uh you know some some challenges but um again glad to say that overall that the majority of our overwhelming majority of our stores are reopened and um as a matter of fact happy to announce i mean first 
kind of uh, news or, or interview um, is, is on your podcast uh, here. But we news. have a, we have a, we have our newest store in Tribeca that will be opening up in the next probably three weeks. So probably oh, first I'm week of September. I'm pump selling them in Tribeca as we speak. So I'm excited to yeah. head down there. Yeah. So, you know, to be able to, to be able to even, you know, open up stores at a time when stores are trying to figure out if they're even going to reopen. Um, I think again, it's another huge blessing. So, you know, that'll at least, uh, kick us back up to 32 open stores in a few weeks. And that makes you feel good knowing that there's people out there expanding their business and opening up new stores specifically in brick and mortar restaurant industry. Like that's awesome during this time specifically. Good for you. That's great. Yeah. You know, that store, though, I'll tell you, that store is going to be the 2.1 model of what the future 16-handle store looks like. Um, it's a much smaller footprint. Traditionally, our stores were anywhere from 1,200 to up to 2,000 square feet. I'd say most stores are in the 1,500 square foot range. This Tribeca store, I, I believe, is 750, so it's half that. Um, but I believe that it's going to do some of the high sales numbers in our system just because... Um, it's addressing, again, from a delivery and a pickup zone, you have Tribeca, Battery Park City, um, Financial District, all the corporate catering, once it comes back and the banks are you know back up and, and, and running, uh, I just think that the, again, the market there, downtown, you know, we've never had a store, um, you know, south of Soho that was able to address that area. And you can only imagine all the, you know, people and parents that have said, like, when are you going to open downtown, downtown? And now we can finally say we're doing that. So... Um, that model, you know, we anticipate it being probably up to 50% off-premise, so like online orders, and then 50% in-store, which is why, um, again, like, you know, I, I really give credit to the franchise operator, Neil, who will be opening up that location. He also operates three other Manhattan locations. Um, he really foresaw that as kind of being the future of retail anyway. And again, I think COVID-19 just kind of put things into perspective, fast-forwarded it. And he's going to benefit from that because, again, having a ton of seating, paying for a bunch of seating that people aren't going to be, you know, comfortable, you know, use, utilizing, is certainly not the kind of restaurant retail model of, of of today or the future, right? I mean, everyone's trying to pivot now and figure out how to do that. So, I think we, you know, we got we got lucky. We were prepared. I mean, however you want to look at it, it's that's the right model. And so, for us to now go out and build stores for half the price of what it used to cost and half the space. Um, but still be able to do all the sales. Again, I think that's what's really exciting for us is I feel, you know, first time in a long time that I think, you know, we're probably going to have more of an aggressive stance on franchise expansion just because what better time to expand when landlords are hurting, right? They're trying to figure sure. out what to do with their retail tenants. Um, yeah. Retailers are certainly not looking to expand like crazy right now. I mean, unless you're sweet green and you have endless uh, capital at, at your helm, you know, you don't really find a lot of the, you know, restaurants expanding um, aggressively. And when I say aggressive, again, we've always been pretty smart and uh, disciplined with our growth. So even during the whole Froyo boom, we were the first ones to offer self-serve frozen yogurt in New York City. Um, and so cool. when, and take us through that. Like, wh how did you have the conviction of Froyo in the heart of the financial crisis? Not only Froyo, self-serve in yeah. New York. I mean, talk about conviction. I'm very curious to hear your train of thought back then. Sure. And so, again, I'm no stranger to starting or pivoting businesses, you know, during a time when everyone is kind of trying to figure out what to do. Um, I look at those as the opportunities. Um, so really with that, my background in hospitality and food service, um, I mean, in hospitality started when I graduated in 2002. Um, I worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car in their management training program. And doing that for three years, uh, I was winning all these sales awards. And my father, who's a restaurateur, took notice and he's like, hey, uh, one of my restaurants um, 
is in a turnaround situation, like it's failing. Um, and he goes, I need you to go down there and fix it. This was in San Diego, California. And so here I was like 25 years old and going down there and running the largest uh, seafood restaurant in all of North America. I mean, this had seating for 500, it was 23,000 square feet. Um, you know, I mean, this is bigger than any like Vegas buffet, like it was huge. And so um, with that, turned it around. I mean, literally using, um, you know, marketing, um, grassroots, as well as again, email marketing was really hot at that time. We had crazy open rates um, and just leveraging the fact that, hey, if we can really focus on providing, a, um, you know, a service that makes people want to come back. I mean, we have the food, we've got the destination, the service really stunk. And so it turned that around. The marketing was not really uh, optimized for anything. So turn that around and you know, really turned around the business and sold it. And it was at that point, my dad's like, you got to stay in food service. He's like, don't go back to car rental or anything else. He goes, you got a knack for this. And I was able to uh, join a startup hospitality group based in Los Angeles. And um, I was the opening operating partner for um, a, a Japanese restaurant called Bistro Kots in Topanga Canyon. Uh, it's still there uh, in a mall in, in California. Uh, but I opened up that restaurant on behalf of the group. Then we acquired... Um, four other Japanese restaurants from the restaurant group. We merged those into our portfolio. And then we opened up three additional uh, sushi restaurant concepts, independent. And so in doing that, I kind of learned how to open restaurants. You know, I certainly was no stranger to managing them. And then I think the, uh, how I got into Froyo was uh, our CEO at the time, he bought the rights for a Texas-based gelato franchise. And so he bought the rights for Southern California. And so he's like, hey, you're now director of franchise development. You're going to start selling gelato franchises. And this is in 2006. And uh, this was really at the, really when Pinkberry was, you know, taken off and Froyo was really starting to be put on the map in Southern California. So again, no stranger to going head to head with kind of, uh, you know, the, the new trend. Um, but, you know, really when I saw that business, I was like, wait, I see something different here. I see specifically the millennial female who's kind of our target consumer um, really choosing to have Froyo similar to how I think a lot of people were treating smoothies. I'm like, this is more than just an ice cream substitute. I'm like, I'm seeing them go in after like yoga and like, you know, fitness classes. I'm like, no one does that with ice cream, right? Um, or if they do, they certainly don't want to get caught. <laughs> it kind of defeats the whole point of that. But when I saw that, I was like, hey, this is more of a lifestyle product. And I think that the soft serve format, in addition to the health benefits of Froyo, I was like, I think there's a longer term play here. And so I really like that model um, a lot better than the gelato franchises I was unsuccessful at selling. And I'm a good seller, so I knew it wasn't me. I was like, it's the concept, it's the product. <laughs> and so I thought, you know what, this is probably my opportunity to go solo. And my parents uh, were good friends with the couple who still today operates uh, the very first self-serve pay-by-weight Froyo shop. It's in Costa Mesa, California. Uh, Mr. Song, it's uh, uh, it's called America's Cup Yogurt. He bought the business. He didn't even start it. He bought the business in 1990. So him and his wife still operate it today. So I mean, do the math. It's 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 uh, wow. it's a it's been a long time. Yeah, and I met them in 07 at the beginning of 07. So um, uh, sorry, in the uh, summer of 07, I met them in the summer of 07, and basically I swapped. I said, look, you teach me the business, I'll come work for you for free. I'm going to create my own brand and franchise it. And I go, if you want that together, we can do it together. But he's like, he goes, look, me and my wife, we're simple. We make money. We have the one store. Um, we don't want to complicate things. But, hey, we heard free labor. If you're going to come and work for us for free, like, we'll teach you the business. And so uh, that was it. And, you know, that's really what I would advise also, like, other entrepreneurs who have, 
you know, kind of aspirations or, you know, an idea or, or just a passion that they want to pursue is I'm like, you know, one of the challenges that I see with a lot of, you know, what I call entrepreneurs, you know, people who want to become entrepreneurs um, is that they don't want to put in that work. They, they like the idea of the hustle, the grind mentality, but they want to take the easy way out of, Hey, I'm going to go raise money. And, you know, and, and, and not that I have anything against raising money, but I bootstrapped this business 12 years ago and I still haven't taken on outside investment. And so to me, I did it that way. Obviously not the only way to do it. You hear a lot more stories of people going out and raising money and, um, and, and raising more money. And that's fine again. But again, I think at the end of the day, what I learned in, in school, um, and I studied business was, you know, the definition of a business is maximizing profitability, minimizing liability. And I think because of the tech boom, um, the KPIs have been switched. And I think it's, you know, it's more about, hey, how much did you raise? And the first question I always ask is like, how, how much profit do you guys have? And then a lot of times it's like, that's great. You raised all these millions of dollars, but you're burning for millions. Of, like you're not making money. So in my mind, just by the sheer definition of what business is, you don't have a business. Like you're working your way towards a business, but you're not maximizing profitability. You're losing money. And look, obviously, depending on what kind of industry you're in, sometimes that's necessary. It's, it's a temporary curve, and I get that. And I'm not knocking that. But what I'm bringing up in terms of my experience is I put my money where my mouth was. I, I took an unpaid position for three months. I put in my time to learn the business, to perfect it, to put together my business model. And then when my family's like, hey, you got this, and we, we're going to be your angel investors for, for one location, I went all in. And I was like, look, I have one shot at this. I want to build a global brand. There's only one city that's more global than LA, right in the US or in the world for that matter, and that's New York City. And so I thought, you know, it being 2008, and yes, you know, I, I tell people, I'm like, I, when I moved to New York City and, and opened up 16 Handles, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers were still two large financial institutions in New York City, right? I mean, that, wow. yeah, it was only it was only 12 years ago, you know, and so, um, you know, so while that's a long time, it was, you know, it wasn't that long ago, and so. Um, I bring that up just because, again, like it, it's not about um, you know how big you are. I, again, I think it's really about like how big is your appetite for where you want to get to, and then what are you really willing to sacrifice, right? And to me, it's not just working seven days a week. I did that. I did that probably the first ninety days. I got sick. I opened up my store and I worked for ninety days straight. And I got, you get sick when you do that, um, and I knew that wasn't sustainable. And fortunately, my cousin, who is my CFO. Um, and was in a transition. He was in private equity, right? And so again, not a, it wasn't a great time to be in finance, or it was an, it was a shaky time at best. And so he was like, "Hey, I'm in between things right now, and I can come help you for a few months." And I was like, "Dude, I would love to have your help." Um, and that was again, I think, the biggest blessing at the time because I was printing money at that first location in East Village, but I just had no time to be able to focus on anything else. And my whole thing is, I wanted to scale this business, right? I know how to create a franchise. Like, I didn't need to pay someone to do that. I, if anything, I got paid to learn how to do that. So again, kind of tracking my steps back, all of those experiences I had that led to me opening up 16 handles and still being able to remain bootstrapped, I think is as a result of all the unique experiences I had prior to that, right? I didn't know how to do franchise development until what? I got put in a position where I had to learn and then do franchise development. You were hands-on every step yeah, of the right. way. Yeah. So all of that, I think- by, Solomon. This is, that's why we call this bootstrapped in the trenches. We're self-funded in a industry against uber doordash these guys just throw they print money and yeah. we've never raised a cent and yeah it's a grind but at the end of the day there's something gratifying of building like that and being in the trenches there's nothing like embracing that grind it's not easy it's not supposed to be or there'd be way more people trying to open 16 or 17 handles for that right. matter. no so absolutely up with the name um yeah so i came up with a name um 
I grew up in LA, you know, and I grew up with 31 flavors Baskin Robbins. And it was very much when I grew up in the 80s and, and, and early 90s, it was about the 31, not so much Baskin Robbins. And so, you know, even before I could read words, it was, you know, my mom would drive us into a strip center. And that was always like my happy place, right? Literally kid in a candy store, more flavors than anyone else. I could sample to my heart's desire. I wanted to recreate that feeling uh, that I had, but again, in a more um, millennial uh, friendly and modern you know, tape, which was, again, the self-serve, soft-serve. And so with that, I'm like, if I really want to go international, I also want, I want to own a number. Like, to own a number, like, that that doesn't get lost in translation, right? And so 31's taken, right? And so, uh, you know, for me, when I was also doing research, I realized that that female clientele, who, by the way, just in anything in dessert, it's, it's typically geared towards females. I mean, they just consume more chocolate and desserts than, than we do as guys um, in general. And so... Uh, that being said, I thought, okay, I know these machines can um, dis- you know, disperse uh, two flavors, so I'm going to have an even number. I'm like, what's an even number that resonates with every millennial female? And again, to me, it's that her Sweet 16. And so one of the working titles that I had was actually Sweet 16 Frozen Yogurt. And I realized at that time that had gone with that one, it's not the number first. I want to own the number. And also at a time when back in 2008, when a lot of people were converting over it because of the health benefits of Froyo, um, I was like, I don't want to lead with sweet, right? Because that doesn't really promote that. Um, nor do I want to be typecast. Like I'm like, we're, we've never stood for health or indulgence or any of that. It's really, it's be- it, it was always about self-expression. It's about you flaunt your flavor. We got it all, right? I'll never forget getting a high five in East Village when um, NYU opened, opened back up. Because, uh, again, I opened in July of uh, 2008, so NYU was on a summer break. And, you know, come August, September, when they came back, I mean, it was just, the place was packed. Like, word of mouth back then, and through Twitter and Facebook, it just, like, it just was gangbusters. And I remember guys coming in, and they'd be like, yes, and are you the owner? I'm like, yeah. He's like, thank you for having hot fudge, man. I hate it when my girlfriend takes me to Pink Fairy. They never have the good stuff. You got the wet walnuts. You got the stuff that dudes like. And I'm like, because, again, I want to be a place for everyone. And so, again, having a name, if I had gone with a name like Sweet 16, to me, that's a lot more limiting, right? And I think it'd be tougher for the dudes to, to go into a place like that because, again, they're probably going to think, oh, this is a place for little girls. And so, um, again, something more broad. And that's when, again, I was, I was thinking, like, all right, like 16, like, and I was like, like the movie, like 16 Candles, right? The, as of, like, three years ago when we launched Ice Cream and then uh, two years ago we did Gelato and last year we did Plant-Based Cashew Milk and this year we launched... Uh, uh, oat milk based, uh, you know, soft serve. And so for, I'm like, we have 16 handles. We're not yogurt land. We're not Froyo world. We're not something that's only going to, you know, typecast us to one thing. And sure, people are still going to recognize us for Froyo because, you know, I think we, we did a pretty good job in the New York City marketplace in terms of um, positioning ourselves that way. But I was like, at the end of the day, anything that comes out of those soft serve machines is fair game. We're 16 handles. So that you, you know what the expectation is, right? And I thought, um, you know, from a naming standpoint, a lot of the marketers and, and agencies that I've worked with, they're just like, no way that you thought of that. They're like, what what firm did you use? I'll say, I swear I thought of it. And the first logo in uh, the East Village store, which doesn't exist today because we rebranded it. Um, my At the time, my 18-year-old sister designed it in her car like in 10 minutes because um, wow. I couldn't get, you know, a lot of the graphic design, uh, you know, outsourced companies that I was, you know, because I was trying to do it for cheap. And I was just like, man, like they're not coming up with good logos. And asked my sister, I was like, hey, like, you're pretty artsy. Like, what do, how would you do it? And she sketched something up, showed it to me. I was like, perfect. I was like, can I give you a hundred bucks and I get to own that? And she's like, yeah. So that's, awesome. that's what it was. 
I, you know, earlier you said that something about that caught my attention when you said that marketing used to have better email ratio and you made a comment like back when email marketing worked and I, it just like made me think about it. You seem to know a lot about marketing. Is it, was there a moment where you shifted away from email marketing? And if so, like what kind of marketing are you doing now that you're seeing success with? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no different than the kind of Gary V school of thought. Um, I actually got put onto him two years ago, but you know, I know that when he was uh, helping his dad's business, it was the same thing. I mean, it was very much like, you know, back in the early two thousands, like email was King, you would get like 80% plus the open rates. And, um, so learning that and, and my background was in marketing. That's what I studied in for undergrad marketing branding. Um, so I knew that, but to me, I was never, again, like, I just knew that that was the channel that worked. And I knew that having a website was great. Cause again, people were curious and going to www.putinyourbusinessname.com. Um, so that's what I used then. And then in 08, when I came to New York city, again, I didn't grow up with uh, social media. Like I graduated in 02. So when I opened in 08 and I knew that my main demographic was that millennial female, I opened up right by the NYU dorms. I, I talked to the customers, right, which were, you know, um, which were the, the college students at NYU. And I was like, guys, like Facebook, Twitter, like, can I go on that as a business? Like, I don't even have a profile. And they showed me how to do it. And really, it was that. I mean, it was as authentic as literally them teaching, like, maybe their older brother, uncle, like, how to use social media. They helped me set up my accounts. And they'd be like, hey, you can do polls. You can, like, talk to us. And back then, again, it was... You didn't have to advertise, right? You post something and all 235 followers would see it, right? And they can engage. And, and, but now that's changed too, right? So just even in the last 12 years, how much social media went from really inception and adoption, which I would say I was an early adopter of that for my business, not for me personally, but for my business. Cause I saw that as being the, what preferred method of communication for my target demographic. That's all it is. Fill in the blank with what's the preferred method of communication. And I wouldn't write off email completely, but you know, we're lucky now to get 10% open rates unless it has free in the caption, which may get us to 20. Right. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, write that off, but at the same time, in the same way, like traditional media, I wouldn't write it off either. You can't say TV and print doesn't work, right. There's still a group of people that will look at that. And, but if you've only gone in and stayed in that, in that vertical or in that channel, like that's when you're going to get stuck. You're going to realize that, wait, my marketing's not working anymore. And it's not that it's not working. So you haven't evolved. Like your, your constituents have moved on to other things in addition to. And so to me, I always look at it that way. So, um, you know, so social media, digital marketing has really been what we've done for the last decade plus. That hasn't changed, right? Influencer marketing. Um, and for me, I like more of the micro influencers, like the local micro influencers. Uh, that's been working well for us. Um, but then now even, even podcasts, you know, which which is what you guys are doing, like these other forms of media to be able to reach people um, without having to just advertise to them. I think to me, it's like a, it's a complete package. And if you don't have kind of that 360 view of a real marketing and branding strategy, like you, like all these individual things are tactics, right? They're all individual channels and they're all important. Like, you know, for me to say like one's good and one's bad. No, like you, you have to have a strategy. And even within your strategy, depending on who your audience is and what types of products you have, so service as opposed to like a consumer product. Again, some channels are going to be stronger in terms of, um, um, you know, getting you that immediate ROI versus, you know, a lower CAC. Like those types of things are important, but again, you have to have an overall strategy. And to me, it's about trying. Like I don't pretend to know everything, but I can definitely speak on what worked and didn't work. 
And that's how I can say, here's what I know works because I used to do it like this. We made these changes and now it works better. Or, hey, we're doing this. It's not working. And I'm talking to peers to figure out how do we make this better. And so, you know, I think you, you constantly have to go into it with that type of mindset. Um, you know, I, I look at a lot of the um, kind of media and advertisers that I, I work with. And, you know, and some of them, they're looking at career changes now. Because it's like, why did you not leave radio? Like, you know, you, you, you again, it's not to say radio is not important. But again, to me podcasts spotify like this is the new radio right it's not that people aren't listening through their ears through audio it's just that the way that they're consuming that content it's multi-dimensional now and if you haven't pivoted past that or adjusted you're, you're gonna get stuck and so to me i'm like i just like i don't want 16 handles to be stuck as oh we were a froyo brand and that was cool and we had a nice run it's no like i want to be this happy place that people can go to for their dessert or snack and we can be there for whatever celebrations there are um, I remember in, I think it was like 2010, we were listed as like in a, a set, uh, what is it, Vogue magazine as like top 10 New York City um, first date destination. And how did we get that data or how did we get voted for it? It was through like uh, all the, the dating apps that were like, you know, starting to go crazy during that time, right? And so like people would check in and it would you know, show that. So to me, I'm just like, see, that's that's how you take that type of data and continue to um, evolve your place of business to be something more than just what you started off as in terms of like what that initial product offering is and the best and biggest companies in the world that we respect now you look back at what was their original product that they thought they were going all in on very often it's not that anymore it looks very different than that right and specifically when i, when I think of the, the qsr uh, industry for food starbucks dropped its coffee company from its name years ago duncan is duncan donuts now just duncan right um a lot of these brands that have established themselves now as like brands and leaders in their space that are looking to go what wider more day parts more product offerings right they're able to do that but you can't do that from day one but you have to start with something build up the credibility get permission for your customers to be able to grow and expand beyond that and you know even some of my competitors when i saw them trying to become something kind of like i i thought it was pretty out there and i was like i don't think you have permission to go into that space and you know now I see some of them, their stores aren't really around. And again, to me, it was like, I saw that happening. I'm like, you're in my direct space. And I know for a fact that you can't do that. I know a fact that we can't do that. And we've also tried to do things where, again, we were like, because we're, we're always trying to push the envelope. I think as entrepreneurs, you have to do that. Um, we try to launch breakfast, right? And we're like, hey, that's a day part that we have zero relevance in. And this is at a time when like Taco Bell and everyone's like jumping into breakfast and they're crushing it. But then I realized, again, just kind of doing my own case study, I'm like, one of the biggest brands, actually the largest in terms of units for food franchises, actually Subway. Subway has more units than McDonald's or anybody else. And I think they did it like 20 years ago. I think Subway tried to launch breakfast. And still today, not a successful day part program. And you have like Taco Bell that I think launched last year, and they're crushing it with breakfast, right? But again, their customer gives them permission. Right? They're known for late night. It, it blurs the line. It's like, hey, I can eat at, you know, I can eat whatever I want at like 80. Like it was millennials that forced McDonald's to do all day breakfast, right? I right. remember like growing up, I hated it. You get by 1035 and like I'm crying because I'm like, I want an egg McMuffin and they won't give it to me because it's five minutes after, right? And so it's like, yeah, you know, these types of things that we were used to and or, or took for granted, um, these things change. And I think that's the important thing. Whether you look at marketing, um, whether you're looking at um, your business evolution, like again, things are constantly going to change and we live during the technology and digital revolution that's where we all, both of our businesses are living during this era it's 
not the industrial revolution you know it's not manufacturing it's not machinery it's very much tech and digital so it's just drop of a dime snap of a finger things can change um you know and again at the same time we still deal with same types of plagues and things that that impact us like covid so i think we have to be on our toes and uh but it's exciting like for me I wouldn't be doing what I was doing if I didn't always see things as glasses half full. And I think that's the other really important quality of a bootstrapped entrepreneur is you have to look at things and wake up every day, not focusing on what you didn't make or what mistake you made and how, like, it's got to be like, what's the opportunity? And like, I feel like the entrepreneurs who constantly have that, like regularly, um, are the ones that, you know, succeed, you know, eventually. And so, you know, I like to think that I'm in that category. I mean, at the very least, uh, you know, that part's not going to change. Guy, I'm 40 right? years old now, and I, I've been that way forever. I don't see that changing at 50 and being like, okay, well, now I'm just going to be, you know, risk averse and just uh, set in my ways and not evolve. And no, like, it's I'm, I'm constantly going to be a student. It's who you are. And you're the ever curious nature, Solomon. The combo of your passion and curiosity, I think that speaks for itself and why you've been so successful. You're always wanting to learn, you're willing to try things. That says a lot about entrepreneurship and risk-taking. Like you said earlier, the trial and error and knowing when things don't work and when you have to pivot, knowing how to listen to consumer behavior, which is easier said than done. I mean, you've shed some great knowledge here. I don't know if you can hear us, but I did see that uh, when he launched the East Village location, there was nine competitors within a four block radius of his wow. stores. So yeah, I wanted to ask him about that and what his mindset was going into that. Let's see if he, we can get him back on to talk about that because we we this have is, a lot. This is what know. life does at you sometimes. You just muted. Audio. There you go. Can you hear us now? Uh, but yeah, some awesome information. He curious how he goes about getting the micro influencers. Yeah, no, I actually so I I found Solomon through Dave Revsiantio, who we've had on the podcast, who's a bigger than a micro influencer. He has like a hundred thousand followers, but um. You know, he's still a smaller influencer in the grand scheme of things. And that's how I actually came across Solomon. Uh, I think it, he'll come right back, I'm sure, in a sec. He's the man. I mean, yeah, I, I, think guys, I almost felt like he's been on our team for the last decade. Seems I like a lot of parallels with his mentality and ours. Yeah. So when I initially saw him, I saw that, you know, he entered this market in a congested space, even though he's one of the first, you know, self-serve ones. It's still a, it was a congested industry and he came into New York and, dominated so go for it all right my back in i can hear you guys yeah, now. yeah. all right so, all right, so i was saying that. that when i first came across you know i was doing some research i saw that when you opened your east village location there was nine other competitors within like a four block radius so what was your <laughs> mindset in trying to tackle this new opportunity new space with all this competition nearby yeah i mean great question and uh, and once again so this is where I felt that my preparation and bring, bringing, you know, what was my unique selling proposition, right? You hear about that. What's your USP? And so for me, knowing that the only advantage I had at the time was I'm bringing self-serve pay by weight to the market um, in a market that didn't have that. And so um, I felt very confident about that. And I also knew from having, you know, worked at the oldest self-serve pay by weight shop, I was able to learn kind of which products were the best and work the best. So that paired with, again, I think my knowledge of being able to do franchise development, um, you know, and, and look, I mean, at the end of the day, like I walked into every single one of those stores, I saw the operations, a lot of them were franchises. And I thought like, okay, one-on-one, -on -one, like there's just no way, like I'm gonna smoke you. 
<laughs> so like yeah, you know uh, i think part of that part of the part of that is also the confidence of again not just oh because i'm great but because i'm just i have a better product a better operating model and i'm more prepared now i'm going to out market you like i'm going to out brand you um I love it. because a lot of those a lot of those companies were also older and antiquated brands i didn't see them doing anything interesting my first spot on east village which again we had our 12 year anniversary um on july july 16. um that was a cold stone creamery that only lasted five months right so there you go like that would have been store number 10 in terms of another ice cream shop and you know at the time again and you know i was just like i don't see cold stone doing stuff i see them closing around the city um i i don't see that as a model that i think is going to scale and, and do well and so you know to me i'm like that that was really the opportunity so to me when my broker was really trying to talk me out of these fields because that was the other thing he's like dude you're crazy kid he goes i'm a he goes i'm born and raised new york jewish guy he goes i know this market he goes back in the 80s i used to have an ice cream shop in, in these village i mean go figure right he was just like there's like don't do this he goes you're coming here from la don't do this and i told him i was like hey look i can't take the chance because i don't know anything about new york city i said i can't take the chance of going somewhere where there's no frozen dessert and I don't know the market here to me, my, my challenge is really, I just got to beat these nine guys. And to me, like I, I'm confident I can do that. Um, but if you're telling me to take a chance and go to a market where there's no Froyo shop or no frozen dessert shop in four block radius, I now have to figure out so much more, right? I'm literally yeah, starting from scratch. So, yeah. So to me, you know, as much as I like the first mover advantage of, of, of having the self-serve concept, what I didn't want was to be, the one to establish that again in a marketplace i wasn't familiar with and so to me there's pros and cons of being first and um to me you know i was like nine other guys are paying new york city retail rents and they're surviving here i was like it's going to be a lot easier for me to try to topple them while i'm still surviving then again to start from scratch and if i get it wrong and that could very well be a real estate mistake now it's game over it had nothing to do with my ability or my product and so i was like i can't take that chance and he's like you're crazy and i was like no that's going back to, I'm looking at it as the glass is half full, right? These nine other guys have already done the research. And I asked him, I was like, do you think there, is there anywhere else in New York City that has, you know, he's like, no, he goes, I would bet that there's nowhere in the country that within a four block radius has nine dessert shops. So I'm like, cool. So I'm, I'm, I'm here to try to make history. Might as well start here in New York City. And, uh, and you know, and it worked. And, you know, I think uh, all but one, and again, who holds, we'll see post pandemic, but up until March, all but one of those original competitors um they all closed and wow. we were the only ones left and again not to say that new ones haven't come in look now our competitors are the van Leeuwens of the world and like you know like there, there's always going to be new right and that that's what i say now is like people are like oh like who's your biggest competitor and so if i'm literally answering that well if you're talking about self-serve frozen yogurt the biggest competitor is menchie's they have over 400 locations but there's only one of their stores that actually competes with the store of that that we're in the same market. Um, so in New York City, Pinkberry is still the largest uh, competitor in terms of most number of stores that we compete against for frozen yogurt. But right. again, like they're shrinking, they're not really growing. So to me, it's like who's growing and who's now, you know. So to me, I'm like it's 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 Van Leeuwen. And even though we're different product formats, um, yeah, completely. Yeah, but still, it's that, that's what it would be. You know, at the end of the day, you're not going to have both products at the same time. You're probably going to choose one or the other. Yeah, yeah, um, and, that makes sense. And, um, and I like it, you know, and I like the fact that, hey, look, I'll give them credit where it's due, too. Like, I started focusing on the plant-based vegan offerings just because I saw them crushing it with hard-scoot ice cream, right? And they really went all in on it. It wasn't just, hey, we got one flavor and we're going to be cute and say we have a vegan one. Because um, I'd had, I'd have, you know, people asking for more non-dairy options that weren't sorbets for, since I started. 
then once I started seeing in food, plant-based really becoming a bigger, you know, bigger thing, a bigger platform. And I saw them really going into it, like, you know, five years ago, I was like, ah, okay. Like I took note of that. And, um, you know, so we went, we went in uh, two years ago and started doing that. And that's been working out well for us. So, yeah, yeah I think it's, it's great quick. to have that type of uh, co-opetition, you know, keep the pie big, um, whether it's the same format, hard, soft, doesn't matter. Like, you know, I think as long as there's great New York city brands, I mean, right now, especially as a result of COVID, we need, we need to kind of band together and work in tandem of kind of bringing people out and spending again. I think that's really what the focus is. It's less about who's dominating and taking frozen dessert share. Um, no one's really dominating anything right now, right? So I think it's just a matter of like recovery, rebuilding and, and rebranding. Like, I think that that's the exciting time. I'm like, the last time I really had a big pivot was, again, 2008, when I came out to New York City and, and introduced self-serve. And now it's like, cool, 2020, um, you know, we're going to start pushing a new and a different type of a franchisable model, right? With the reformulated retail environment. That's not abandoning who we are or what works for us, but again, it's just making it work more efficiently. I think that's that's the key. Let me ask you, and this is more of a COVID question, but um, I've, so I live on 83rd and, and 1st, so I know you guys have a location right here in 82nd, the Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. um, has the tables outside helped you and will that help you in the future, just having people kind of stay around and, you know, cause you haven't had that before, haven't had that ability, especially in the summer with having these outdoor seating, it seems like kind of a perfect fit for you guys. Yeah, you know, I think, again, timing-wise, it worked out where um, de Blasio made it uh, very easy and um, you know, to, for, for restaurant retailers to have outdoor seating. Typically, those sidewalk cafe permits would be like eight grand, which is not something yep. that we would pay for. Um, so I think, again, that worked for us. And, and once the city started opening up, sort of, it also just happened to be in our uh, summer season. But um, I don't foresee that as being like a long-term solution for us. I think it was like a nice short-term help. I think anytime you walk by and you can see people enjoying your product, because um, clearly they can't do that in store at any of the restaurants right now, um, I think right. it helps from, a, from an advertising standpoint. But for as long as we're able to do it, we will. But again, like I, my question would be like, what happens come October when it's, it gets a little too cold for people to sit outside? And if these re we can't open up indoors, well, again, like we're going to have to really focus on um, our digital carry orders out. right right carry out yeah. delivery um and and that'll happen and so yeah like I, I think we'll keep it for as long as we can um and as long as we don't have to pay for it i mean we'll, we'll certainly we'll certainly keep doing that i mean i'd love to keep it out there that's always been something that i've wanted it was just that the unit economics never worked out math wise because unlike other restaurants we wouldn't have the ability to upsell on drinks or other things once people are sitting there it's more like they already made the purchase they're not going to eat anymore right. now they're just sitting there so it's too expensive for us to pay for their outdoor seating, but um, yeah. Solomon, how often do you and your family, like your kids, you and your wife, how often do you have 16 handles? I, I'm so curious to know what your indulging is like <laughs> with that. So my wife, definitely a lot more than I do. Um, sometimes I wonder, uh, so she she's always been a huge 16 handles like fan and, and a very loyal customer. Um, probably made marrying her much easier. Um, <laughs> she found out what I did, but um uh, so for her, I mean, and, and her, she works at NYU hospital. So she's there like at our Murray Hill store, like all the time. Um, uh, I would say for myself simply because it's also my, my work and I'm also, I lead product development. I sign off on all the flavors, uh, with our chefs. And so, you know, for me, 
probably less so as an indulgence, um, even though I can technically kind of get it for free and I do and I have to sign off on things. For me, I, I take a trip out to one of our manufacturers um, out in Michigan every year for like three, four days. And so I'm just eating soft serve for like three days straight. And while that sounds cool, it's actually not when you're doing it. It's cool for like the first like three hours. And then by day two and day three, like your taste buds are shot and you just can't eat anything else. And so, um, you know, so, so, so to me, it's like, I enjoy our product and, and my favorite flavors are, are, are mango sorbet. It's made with Alfonso mangoes from India, which are like the sweetest mangoes I've ever had when I traveled out to India. So I knew that I needed those mangoes. Um, so that was awesome to be able to create that flavor. Um, but yeah, like my daughter, she's three. She gets it rarely. You know, we try not to give her too many sweets. Uh, but here in Long Island, we have one that's near us. And so uh, just, uh, I think like a month ago, we went and got, uh, we, we picked up some 16 handles and um, she was super happy about it. And when my wife told her, she's like, your dad owns this. She's like, the whole thing. Or no, she, she goes, she goes, she goes, she, he owns that store. That's where daddy works. She goes, no, 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 no. He owns the whole thing. Like he made this. And he's like, daddy, you're so cool. 16 handles is so yummy. And I was just like, oh, that's awesome. That's priceless. That is awesome. Um, I love that. Yeah. So, and uh, Alvin, to, just to end this, you know, being in the food business and all, what's your, what would your last meal on earth be? Like calories my, mean nothing. Yeah. You know, my last meal on earth would be, um, it would just be all I could eat sushi, sashimi, omakase, like until I, yeah, I would want that to kill me. I'd want to die from overconsumption of that. That really is the best last food answer we've had on this podcast since we've started. Now yeah. we're talking. And, 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 and where can our viewers find you if they want to go to 16 Handles online, Instagram, website? Yeah, so all of our social handles, it's the number 16 Handles. Um, you know, for me personally, again, if I could be helpful for any, uh, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneur, um, at Solo Handles on Twitter, um, Solomon Choi on Instagram, Solomon Choi on LinkedIn. Um, with my name, it's pretty easy for me to get that handle as well, so... Um, That's you know, awesome. generally speaking, it's just my first and last name. Um, but yeah, I enjoy doing it. I love talking to entrepreneurs. I always try to make time to, to do that. Uh, it's, it's a passion of mine just cause again, I look back and I'm like, I wish that there were more, um, mentors, coaches, or even just again, entrepreneurs who made themselves available. I think that's one of the things I find is entrepreneurs, they forget real quick, you know, how, how hard it was to struggle and how nobody's going to pick up the call. No one's going to give you a sale. And once they experience a little bit of success and then they're on the other side, you got to pay it forward, you know, because you have to remember what that was like. And so I'm a big believer of that. And karma, you know, I believe in that. So you got to pay that forward. And um, yeah, I, I just think uh, this this country's recovery is going to come back because of entrepreneurs, right? Because of small business owners, because of that. So, um, you know, we have we have to support each other during this time. Well, Solomon, we really appreciate the time. Hopefully we can all break bread together soon and I'll be sure to go to that Tribeca location when it opens. I can't wait to try 16 handles. Yeah, awesome. I think I'm going there tonight, 100%. Got me in the mood. <laughs> Thanks so much for the time, man. We're rooting 16 handles on. Pumped to see the future for you. Yeah, my yeah, pleasure. Man. And Thanks for having me, guys. Best of luck also. Of course. Thanks again, Thanks. Solomon. Take care, buddy. All right. Drive safe. That was awesome. Yeah, he's a yeah, beast. That was great. I, I think, guys, we could take a lot of that. I, I heard him talking, and I just was getting real pumped for our journey here. When you really think about it, I think we're really, you know, starting this podcast, getting into expansion mode. We're for our viewers that don't know, we're probably in the most competitive space on the planet right now with restaurant delivery. Part of why we started 
this podcast and called it Bootstrapped in the Trenches, our journey has always been self-funded and we're competing against, you saw Solomon highlighted it early on, we're in this era where things have kind of flipped and a lot of companies care very little about profiting and they care more about how much money was raised. We've obviously been in quite the battle, but we've been resilient. This pandemic clearly is great for food delivery. He showcased a lot of things, the power of the pivot, staying enthusiastic. We heard it with Zach Oates a couple of weeks ago, stay excited, stay alive. I, I think we're starting to pick up on certain recurring patterns with successful entrepreneurs that we've had on here. And we could take a lot from that. And I'm excited to see what he has in store. Maybe we can get 16 handles going with Lodell. Yeah, once we're in the East Coast. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like he's too. Yeah, I was just going to say, there's no doubt that guy's figured out the whole digital marketing thing, it seems like. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't know 16 candles because I'm not from New York. Candles. What? 16 candles was that, uh, wasn't that a movie back in yeah, the. 16 yeah, 16 candles was a movie. It's, uh, 16, 16 candles. <clears throat> but yeah, it sounds like from what he was saying, he's got a great handle on just like the new age and way of doing marketing. But it's, it's cool, Dan, because even when, Corey, we were talking, I know you've been big on Snapchat for us getting involved in that game for a while. And when we talked to Sarah's brother, Ronan, earlier, he highlighted that. And it's just cool even thinking how we're always trying to make sure we're staying at the forefront. We're not 18 anymore. It was much easier when we were college kids to think like a college kid. But I, I think Solomon's done a great job of staying a young, hip brand, regardless of who, how old he is. He brings in the right people. And I think it's awesome that we're having these thought leaders on the ground now helping us with those things. And we're open-minded to that where it's like, Hey, yeah. how are we like Dan started off today asking him, how do you see this as an incoming freshman? How do you look at that in social media? So it's really important. I think to take the ego out of it a lot of the time when we bring in people into the mix that might not necessarily even have experience in our field, but they have a different lens on the world based on their demographic, their age group, what, what they're doing on their day to day. So that that's really enlightening and something we should really keep thinking about. Yeah. I love how he said that his customers often bring new opportunities to him and he kind of figures out things that way. And that makes yeah. a lot of sense to me. That That's the big thing. There's nothing you can get better than data points from your consumer behavior. And that's, I think we're picking up on that as well. And we always have to keep an open mind. Like Corey, you even brought up, we have Eat Clean Bro coming on in a few weeks. Maybe we can work out a synergy with him. The power of the pivot. I know we tested the commercialized kitchen. We've started this podcast. We've never been afraid to try new things. That's entrepreneurship, guys. You adapt or you get extinct. That's the reality. That's what makes it fun. And Solomon's dead on. That's what's going to lead to this recovery. Entrepreneurship. That's what makes America, America. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. another note, he really changed the name Solomon for me because uh, before this, I was, <laughs> every time oh, I thought man. about Solomon, I thought about our Mile High Menus driver. He was a legend. <laughs> I really know that. Oh, man. <laughs> well, yeah. Perspective for Solomons around the world. Well, Corey, great job bringing him on, man. This was a phenomenal guest. And uh, I'm, I'm getting excited, guys. This podcast is starting to, it, it's becoming a fun weekly thing. And I, I think it was great when we started this. And yeah. it's going to be interesting to see where this thing goes. Yeah, this is one of my favorite ones so far. It's a good Me one. too. Yeah, so that was a good one. I think it's young man's dinner time, Dan. You got to fill up that bowl. 
<laughs> Can you get him on for a quick second? He's been on uh, FaceTime the last few. If we do like an outro interview with the man real quick. Yeah, let's get the man asking us what we're feeling for dinner. Young yeah. man. Exit interview. Let's see. Pull him up a bit, Dan. I can't see him. Oh, there he is. Young man. <laughs> What's going on, bud? Miles Dog. The one, the only. The best Jack Russell on the planet. He does speak human when he feels like it. Miles, miss you, pal. I'm coming down there, I think, the end of September. So we're going to take some walks and hang on the couch. It's going to be a blast. Good stuff, guys. Until tomorrow. Well, until next week for Bootstrapping in the Trenches. We actually have a councilman in Las Cruces coming on next week. Gabe Vasquez. Bootstrapped in the trenches, making moves going all out. Every day handle business. You know that the hustle don't stop. Got my team, let's get it. Reviewing books and talk stocks. Steady keep it moving. So you gon' wanna tune in. Get Lowdown, it's an app. Get local food on demand. Delivery right to your home. Everything in the palm of your hand. Took hard work and dedication. Come through, join the conversation. This is history up in the making. We just wanna be an inspiration. Hey, let's go.